an interview with Northwestern University's James Allen Fox, and a deep dive into the first ever Gunmakers match. That and more on this week's episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison. Just Welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com. This week we have several big stories that I'm going to bring to you here, including one that we just published, a big original story, over at TheReload.com. But first, let's talk a little bit about Louisiana. Uh, the Bayou State this week rejected permitless gun carry, permitless concealed carry, after the governor's veto was not overridden. Uh, the initial bill had passed with veto-proof majorities, but when Republicans decided to go for it and override in practice, the first time that's ever been tried in Louisiana, apparently, uh, several senators flip-flopped. There were four, three Republicans, one Democrat, uh, and a fourth Republican voted for permitless carry but didn't show up to the actual veto override vote. So... It failed, and Louisianans won't get permitless carry this year. They'll have to wait until uh, at least next year to try again, perhaps until s- some of these politicians are out of office, because it's going to be very difficult, to, perhaps, to uh, change their minds, or in some of their cases, uh, change their minds back to what they had already supported in the first case. I did speak to one of these senators, Senator Bernard uh, about his decision to flip-flop on this vote. Um, And he told me, essentially, that law enforcement officers had come and spoken to him in the time between when he voted for the permitless carry and when he voted not to override the governor's veto of it. Uh, And they stressed that they didn't believe it was safe, uh, and he changed his mind to agree with them, Uh, although Presumably there was that discussion had already happened before the first vote. But um, regardless, there were uh, three Republicans and one Democrat who changed position in order to make sure the override vote failed. And now um, advocates are going to have a difficult time overcoming that. Uh, likely in future legislative sessions down there. And it just goes to show how difficult it is to pass permitless carry in states where Republicans do not have total control of the lawmaking process in all but two states that have adopted the policy thus far. There have been Republican control of each House and the governorship in order to get that policy through. You've seen 21 states adopted. Uh, The two that weren't Republican trifectas at the time were um, Maine, which had a Republican governor and a Republican Senate in 2015 when they passed it, but a Democratic House. And then Vermont, which has had permitless carry since the very beginning uh, of the state. That's why it's also often called Vermont carry. So from here, there's only seven states left that have Republican trifectors, but don't already have permitless carry. So there's still some room for advocates to make progress in these other states like Florida and South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama. But with five states adopting it this year alone, with how quickly Republican states have moved to permitless carry, it might not be very long until there aren't any left to adopt the policy because they all have. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out from here on. And certainly it'll be really interesting to see how things unfold in Louisiana next year or in their next elections and see how these senators who change their votes uh, fare when they're put up uh, you know, against their constituents and see what kind of reaction that draws. But the other big story we have is an original piece that I published from my trip to St. Augustine, Florida, to visit the first ever Gunmakers match. And that was the end of June. I did several interviews with a number of people who attended this event, watched the whole thing, got to see a lot of interesting firearms, got to 
experience what that community is like. And, and for a lot of these people, it was their very first time meeting in person, their very first time really fleshing out the community, uh, putting names to screen, real names to screen names, right? That was a pretty amazing experience. It was extremely hot and humid, I'll tell you that much. Uh, it's amazing that some of those uh, plastic guns did not melt. But, of course, they are more durable, I think, than most people realize. And they've come a lot further in the last several years than I think people realize as well. And so I spoke to a number of those guys about why they like to build their own guns, um, print them. In, in a number of cases and as well as, you know, their political beliefs. And, and you get a, a mix of people who are really into the engineering aspects of building your own firearms, especially from 3D printed components. Uh, and then you get the other side, which is very much into the political philosophy behind printing your own firearms, right? And and I, I think for most of them, it's it's a meld of the two, Right. It's not just one or the other, but oftentimes it's they really enjoy tinkering. They're builders. They might work on their own cars or have had experience with 3D printing uh, either at work or in their private life before they got into printing guns uh, and view the, the challenge of, of 3D printing a structure that can withstand the uh, a gunshot, right, the, the forces put on that material by a gunshot. And then at the same time, they also have this, uh, you know, fairly, fairly radical, I guess, I'm sure a lot of them would even say fairly radical belief in, um, liberty, I, I, personal liberty, personal freedom. Uh, they, they don't view themselves as a risk or a threat to society and that, uh, and they don't think that laws that try to regulate, the building of firearms, the making of firearms, which to be fair, of course, has been around for literally the entire history of the United States and really for centuries before that. You could legally build your own firearms in most societies. Certainly here in the United States, it's been legal to build your own firearms for personal use since forever. So there's, there's nothing necessarily radical about that idea, but um, certainly today there's a lot of consternation over this concept now that it's become not necessarily easier. That's another interesting thing. Easier in some senses, but there is a lot of work that goes into actually putting together a 3D printed firearm and you can't 3D print every single part um, from plastic. It's not, it's not possible. Those forces are too much for some components like barrels, but uh, in, in most every circumstance, but there's a lot of interesting things that are being done at the forefront of both the technology of this and the legal and political debate over it. Uh, you've had president Biden himself is trying to make it more difficult for people to build their own firearms without serial numbers on them. Uh, because he argues that, it makes it harder to track gun crimes, uh, whereas these guys think it's, a, of course, a fundamental human right to be able to build your own uh, weapons for self-defense uh, and that societies that restrict firearms wholesale are authoritarian and despotic by definition. Uh, and so they, they see this as a – this activity of building your own firearms is kind of an unstoppable way around any sort of government restrictions, uh, but which they, I think, coherently believe is uh, something that criminals will find a way to do anyway. Criminals will find a way around gun laws and certainly do in America all the time. And so they don't often believe that everyone should be restricted in an attempt to restrict bad actors. Um, and if you read the piece, you'll see a number of different attendees make this argument of there are more, there's more good that comes from the availability of homemade firearms and 3d printed firearms than there is bad. And 
that they are comfortable with the trade-offs. So you should head on over to the reload and take a listen or take a, take a read of that piece. You get a lot more than I can cover here on the podcast, but there's some really truly fascinating points of view that these guys have and really, really interesting um, political philosophy that they talk through. And then also the engineering aspect is, is fascinating as well. So I encourage you to go and read it. It's a fairly long piece. A lot of good pictures in there too, that I took uh, speaking of which with my uh, camera that I've upgraded to take pictures for the site. Uh, and I've also upgraded the audio equipment here for the podcast. I know there was a, uh, you could hear my refrigerator actually <laughs> running uh, on the last podcast. So I thought, well, I need to get a dynamic mic to make sure that that uh, is not uh, a problem anymore. And so hopefully I sound a little bit better and a little clearer with a little less background noise uh, than I previously did. But <clears throat> anyway, we're, we've got this week uh, Professor James Allen Fox from Northeastern. He's also a contributor to USA Today. Uh, and he's on to discuss mass shootings, how we count them, how how counts can be misleading, and especially uh, how they have been misleading <laughs> in the last several years uh, from many media outlets. Uh, and we also talk about the causes of mass shootings, the proper ways to respond to them, the improper ways to respond to them, things that don't work. He's got decades of experience tracking mass shootings and, and researching them. So I think he gives a lot of really interesting insight. Um, also, if you are a Reload member, you get this podcast a day early. Uh, and if you're not a member, you should join so that you can hear this podcast a day early, in addition to getting exclusive access to posts that uh, you wouldn't otherwise be able to see, analysis pieces. I've got a second piece on my personal experience at the Gunmakers match down in Florida. If you uh, are you read through the free version, the report, and you can go in and, and read the members only uh, piece that gives a little bit more insight, a little more personal uh, flair to what was going on down there in St. Augustine or St. Augustine. I don't never could. I think it's St. Augustine, right? I don't know. You guys, you guys can tell me uh, I, uh, somehow. If you record a, record yourself saying it and send that to me, I guess. <laughs> or if you meet me in person, just tell me how to pronounce that city's name because I, I still can't get it to this day. Anyway, we're going to move on here now to uh, the interview with Professor James Allen Fox. All right, we're here with James Allen Fox, professor at Northeastern University. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions surrounding mass shootings, um, and some of the ways that the media covers them and how that could be contributing to the, the issue and how it may be misleading people as well. Uh, but I think we're, we're going to have a really interesting discussion on that front, uh, something that a lot of people are are very uh, in tune with uh, these days for sure. Um, but uh, James, if you, Professor Alan Fox, uh, Professor, if you could um, – just give us a little bit of background about yourself. Tell our, my audience uh, who might not have heard of you uh, some of the things that you've done over the By years. By the way, the reason why, why I do use James Allen Fox as opposed to James James Fox is when I graduated with my doctorate many years ago, 45 years ago, there were 800 criminologists, professional criminologists, and four were named James Fox. So uh, <laughs> I used my oh, full man. name to distinguish myself from the others. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So anyway, as as I've indicated, I have been in this field for 45 years. I've been a professor at Northeastern University for that entire period of time. I started studying mass shootings, mass killings, and serial murder as well in the early 1980s. Uh, in fact, my first book on the topic came out in 1985. Interesting, no one was interested in mass shootings back then. Not that they didn't happen. They mm. did happen. We, You know, we had... 14 people killed at a post office in Edmond, Oklahoma, the first of a series of shootings, uh, which led to the term going postal. We had uh, 21 killed mm -hmm. at a McDonald's restaurant. There, there were cases back then, but people were obsessed with, with Bundy and Gacy and uh, Berkowitz, the uh, serial killers. Now, things have changed Interesting. in the last few years. 
Yeah. Uh, now there's a, it's a very crowded room uh, of the people who are studying mass shootings. I've been doing it for 40 years. And you, you maintain uh, a database, uh, or you're one of the principals on a database that tracks mass shootings over the years. Um, I think one of the things that has certainly become a media a media creation perhaps or a media you get the impression watching a lot of cable news or even reading print ma- uh, newspapers that mass shootings are massively on the rise um and you know in my, in my experience writing about this uh it seems like that's largely due to a change in how most media outlets now define what a mass shooting is rather than the actual incidents themselves becoming more common is that what you found in your research great, as well, or how, how to a great extent. Down? For decades, the traditional definition of a mass shooting was actually a mass killing with gunfire. Four or more people killed mm-hmm. by gunfire. Uh, in 2012, was sort of a watershed year. Uh, that's when we had a shooting at Oikos University. We had the shooting at the uh, movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, and, of course, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. That's when people really started paying attention. And because there wasn't any official database, a bunch of organizations, uh, Mother Jones, Washington Post, variety of organizations started their own, including USA Today. One of them being... uh, Right, which is where you're contributing. Yes, it's it's the Associated Press. It's a a combination of Associated Press, USA Today, and Northeastern University. It's a collaboration from the three organizations. Uh, I can get back back to that later. But the point I want to point out is that the Gun Violence Archive, as well as the Mass Shooting Tracker, which were launched in 2013, basically they said, well, you know, there's nothing in the phrase mass shooting that implies death. So they decided to, they kept the threshold of four more people shot. Mm-hmm. They said, well, sh- shot, they could either be injured or dead. Well, it's great that they collect these data. It's a you know, voluminous data set. The problem is it's it's uh, confusing to people. And part of the reason mm-hmm. why it's confusing is those those statistics of four more people shot, not necessarily killed, they are always brought out for context in the press and on television in the wake of a mass killing when 10 people are murdered. Right. Uh, like, like, for example, Boulder, Colorado, the next day you see all these citations. Of, oh, there's hundreds of mass shootings a year. Well, they're different. Those are different. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the gun violence archive mass shootings, on average, there's one person killed per case. In fact, half of the cases, no one gets killed. In three quarters, it's either none or one. So I don't want to minimize the pain and suffering of these victims. But let's not confuse the issue by conflating it with these deadly mass killings that truly drive the, the, the news news stories. Yeah, and you know something else I would note there. Uh, two points actually. One, you know, when this start, first started to happen, um, and I really started to notice it in 2015. Um, uh, there was there was a Reddit group that had uh, popularized this this uh, definition of mass shooting. The mass shooting uh, tracker. They were yeah. overtly, yeah, and they were an overtly, uh, that, that came out of an overtly anti-gun Reddit, subreddit, um, where it, it, it kind of felt as though they were trying to get to uh, the point where they could say that mass shootings happen every day. Uh, that's what it felt to me at the time. I, you know, I don't want to uh, impugn anyone's motives, but that, that certainly, I mean, that was an extremely popular talking point at the time. That, that, well, if you count them in this certain way, there's one every single day. And, and I agree that that seems to be extremely misleading because when people, the average person thinks of a mass shooting, yes, they think of something like Sandy Hook or Las Vegas or, or Parkland or something truly uh, horrific, you know, randomized violence uh, against innocent people in a public space. Um, so. Uh, which is, you know, to some degree, like that, that, that seems to be what a lot of people think. I know that there's still, there's still plenty of debate over what the best way to measure it is. But well, Let me give an but, example um, where it, it gets seems... really distorted. About six weeks ago, uh, 
the New York Times did a story, and the headline was uh, a partial list of 13 mass shootings this already this year. And they listed 13, all of which were mass killings. You know, Atlanta, Boulder, uh, Indianapolis FedEx facility, all of them were mass killings. And then they said, this is just a partial list. There are many others that w- that aren't here. Well, that kind of implies that the many others are just like these. That it sort of it implies that this is like a random selection. But it's not. Those were all of the mass killings. All the hundreds of other ones are much less severity. And, again, people can easily get confused. The other thing about the, the, the gun violence archive and this definition of four more people shot is we don't have any data prior to 2013. So when they say, oh, there's more mass shootings than days, which there are, it's probably true back in 2005 and certainly in the early 1990s when the homicide rate was much higher than it is now. So there's no long-term right. trend and perspective. So people think this epidemic, well, you don't have a lot of data to, to suggest that. Now, with mass killings, mass shootings before more people are killed, which is what we collect with the uh, Associated Press USA Today Northeastern Database, we collect all cases of four more people killed, with guns or without guns, whether it's private space like a home or a public location, whether it's a a stranger or a husband who's doing the killing, uh, no matter what the motive. So we collect all these cases. We do categorize them so we have, you know, you can look at how many were public, how many were in family, that kind of thing. But we, we have data that goes back decades. And there has been some increase, but marginal. I mean, for example, the kind of shootings that people really think about, the public massacres, uh, on average, there are about a half dozen a year. In 2018, there were 10. And in 2019, I believe there were nine. So we see a little bit of an increase. But, you know, when in a population of, of 330 million people, you certainly can't call the actions of nine or ten people an epidemic. It's still a rare event. But when you, when you, when right. you juxtapose that those... with the fact that, oh, there's – over 600 mass shootings last year, according to the Gun Violence Archive, mm-hmm. that's where people get the exaggerated view of the risk. And that's why over half the population, according to surveys, over half Americans fear that, truly fear that there'll be a mass shooting in their neighborhood. About one-third avoid certain places because they are concerned about being killed in a, in a mass shooting. And as many as 25% of Americans think that mass shootings are responsible for more gun deaths than any other kind of gun crime or even suicide. Right, which so, is just yeah, wildly A lot of, mis- off, lot of misinformation, a lot of myths. Right. And, and uh, you know, it, I would say even what constitutes most mass killings, um, and be, because, you know, I looked at the – the incidents back in 2015 when I, when I wrote a piece on this, and uh, I would imagine uh, this remains true today, most of them are, are family sides, right, where, where someone murders their entire family inside their home, um, which is, again, not necessarily what most people would even associate with the word mass shooting. Not that, you know, the point here isn't obviously that those sorts of killings don't matter or that other kinds of, yeah. you know, shootings that don't, take four lives don't matter. It's just, an, it, it, it's about consistency and it's about right. not misleading people. That's what really bothers me about it as a reporter, you know, going out and trying to tell everyone that something like Sandy Hook happens every day in the United States. I mean, it's a lie is what it is. And uh, you know that they don't buy into it anyway. Like they use uh, most people in media who use this talking point, um, their, their networks don't, change to adapt to this idea because they still they'll still cover the mass killings wall to wall and live right but they don't do that for every uh, one of the what they now are defining as mass shootings like you can tell by their actions they don't really believe it in this change in definition uh they don't really believe that something like 
uh, what happened in Minneapolis happens right. every but what's day. interesting, and um, I recall called uh, mass shootings versus mass killings, where I started out by saying, why is it that so many articles and columns start out by saying there's hundreds of mass shootings a year, and then every single example they give are mass killings, because those are the ones that people recognize. That's why there's this confusion. Uh, now, one in terms right. of change, so I did say there's a slight increase in public mass shootings the mm-hmm. past couple of years. Uh, and I will agree with you, 45% of mass killings are in the family, or mass shootings are in the family. They don't get the same kind mm-hmm. of publicity because most people think, well, that's not my family. That's not going to happen to me. They don't relate to it. Right. There's no randomness nature right. to it. You, you're not, I mean, not, not, you know, there's sort of a, a, an extra disconnect between uh, the average person and someone who can who commits right. a, a randomized public shooting that makes people curious about well, it, that makes people interested. And it could happen to anyone it, at right? any time, yeah. any place. Right. And that's why it's scary. And that's why people are So those are the ones that scare people, sure. but those are the rarest. Now, one thing I do have to say is that there have there have been some particularly large-scale killings the past few years. For example, we've had, mm-hmm. in our history, if we had eight, we've had eight mass shootings with 20 or more victims. Uh, six of the eight have occurred since 2016. So, yep. you know, that we have, of course, Las so Vegas it, and, and, and uh, mm-hmm. Pulse, and we have El Paso. So that's... that's disconcerting you've written a bit about yeah certainly that's very concerning it's very real um and you've written a bit about why that might be um i think you've written also about some of the uh misconceptions about what drives these sorts of acts uh right commonly you'll hear things like um mental health is the main driver or a history of domestic violence now you've looked at uh you've done research on that front uh, and you think that that's not necessarily, at least the way that we talk about it in media, is not necessarily well, it's, accurate. It's, it's very, people would like to find an, an easy explanation, like, oh, they're all in, mentally ill. Well, very few are. Uh, the, the percentage that, that are severely mentally ill, depending on which study you go by, could be 10%, 15%, maybe even less. It's not, a, not the majority. You know, to carry out this kind of methodical bloodbath, it takes some degree of control and, and a clear-headedness. In fact, there was a, there was a case years ago, uh, someone who, who really wanted to commit a mass shooting at a McDonald's restaurant. And he drove to the restaurant, and he locked his car, and he locked his ammunition in the car. He was so confused, he couldn't even get that far. So it does. So it's a myth that they're... Most of them are mentally ill. Now, the other thing is, they. what's true about mask shooters is they see themselves as the victim of injustice. They feel that everyone else is getting all the breaks, mm-hmm. not them. And they want, treat, they want uh, treatment. They want fair treatment. They don't want psychological treatment because they don't think there's anything wrong with them. Um, and even, even if we offered it to them, they generally wouldn't take us up on it. You know... After Sandy Hook, uh, Barack Obama went to Hartford, and he gave a speech, and he said, we need to do something about the mentally ill before it's too late. Now, why is that? Is it that we're so so concerned about the well-being of the mentally ill, or is it because we're so concerned about the well-being of of the people they may shoot? It's really the latter, which only reinforces the stigma associated with mental illness by by conflating mental illness and mass murder. Okay. And, and what about the connection to domestic well, violence? Well, this uh, came up after the Southern Springs shooting, uh, which is a case down in Texas. Uh, 26 were killed. And it turned out that the shooter had previously had a conviction while in the military for domestic violence. And I won't go through all the details about that. But in the wake of that, there was a study uh, published by Every Town for Gun Safety that basically said 54% of mass shootings are connected to domestic violence. And I remember being on a, on a CNN show when this study came out and this other person on the, on the show 
who's a domestic violence expert, said, oh, the majority of mass shooters have history of domestic violence. And I said, that's not true. It's more like 18, 20%. What happened was, if people misunderstood the word connection, that 45% of mass shootings are in the family, like you mentioned. That is an act of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. The percentage who have a history of domestic violence, okay. where that might be some warning sign, is, again, somewhere in the teens in terms of percentages, not a majority. Really, it's that low. In fact, a lot of these guys live alone. And, and so they, what, don't, they, they don't have uh, – they're not in relationships where they would be committing domestic violence. Hmm. And, and so what, uh, what is it that you think uh, is driving this uh, – people to but, commit these sorts of acts? Uh, we've obviously heard a lot of talk as well about sort of the, uh, the contagion effect, this sort of uh, almost the copycat kind of uh, effect where – uh, I guess it's it's similar to the riot effect, right? So, uh, you know, where the bar gets the the first person, the you know the fiftieth person to riot is not the most likely to person to do it, but they see a bunch of other people do it, and that lowers their bar to participate. And I guess that the theory is uh, when we cover these mass shootings, which with so much intensity, uh, that it uh, makes it a more realizable goal for someone who was perhaps considering doing this, uh, then then maybe they, yeah. Uh, Is that something that you find credible? There is a contagion, but it's not related to the media. In fact, I recently Mm. published a study looking at the timing of mass shootings and publicity about mass shootings. And there's lots of publicity after a shooting, but not leading up to them. Publicity does not generate mass shootings. Now, there is copycatting. It's a little different. That's someone who admires someone else who committed a crime like that. Uh, in a, but, but you don't see the clustering, I guess, no, of nope, mass nope. shootings? Like, like, for instance, El Paso and Yeah, they happened two days in a row, but um, it's hard to say that that was mm-hmm. – that can happen randomly. In fact, the, the, the clustering mm-hmm. that you do see is not connected to, to media. Now, where, where there is yeah. some connection in terms of contagion – is the extent to which we obsess over it. Uh, you know, the people constantly talking and worrying about mass shootings uh, and and, talk, and writing about it in, in social media, and we have political debates where mass shooting is, is brought up as a topic. The more we obsess over it, the more we remind people who are angry, disenchanted, feel that they're, they're being the victim of injustice, that this is what people do to get even. I'll give it a good example uh, to to demonstrate that kind of con- contagion. Not media contagion, just obs- our public obsession with it. Back in the li- late 1990s, from 1996 to 2001, we had eight multiple victim school shootings. More than we've had more recently. Eight of them. Uh, and it was San Diego, I mean, there was a, a West Paducah and Pearl and, of course, Columbine and Springfield, a whole slew of them. And it was so bad that uh, uh, Bill Clinton had an advisory committee on school shootings. I was on a member of that committee. Uh, they, they, it was a constant topic on the news, school shootings. And when there was a shooting in March of 2001, Dan Rather, CBS News, declared mass, uh, school shootings a national epidemic. There was not another one for four years. You know why? Well, months later... September 11th, 2001, happened. Mm. And Americans stopped thinking about school shootings. They started obsessing over terrorism, al-Qaeda. And once Americans focused on that and stopped obsessing over school shootings, they didn't didn't constantly remind teenagers that the thing you do is to bring a gun to school. Okay. So, So from your point of view... It's not so much the immediate flood the the channel coverage of every mass shooting uh, as it is right. a more general focus and obsession over the topic that right. reminds potentially uh, you know people who, who might potentially carry this out. Well, that let it's me an go a little for further that though. Um, you know, there's this uh, campaign called the No No Notoriety Campaign. Uh, they, they advise right. 
the media not to show the face of the killer and not to mention their name. Well, first of all, it's kind of impractical. Mm -hmm. We we mention the names of all other kind of criminals, uh, so it's not really practical. And it's part of the story, the basic information about the perpetrator. You see, it's and the thing is, it's it's the act, not the actor, that like-minded individuals admire and applaud. There are white supremacists who who were thrilled with what happened in El Paso. They don't know the guy's name. They they wouldn't pick his face out of a lineup. But they know what he did. So we're not going to tell the media, oh, don't cover these crimes because other people might get ideas. Now, that said, sometimes the media does cross a line going from news reporting to celebrity watch, where they humanize the individual by writing feature stories about their lifestyle or information that's totally irrelevant to our understanding of the crime. Take, for example, the Las Vegas shooter. We know uh, what casino games he liked. We know about all his prior relationships. We know about his jobs that he had had. We know what, what, what he ate the night of the shooting. We know what shoe size he wore. There's a, there's a photograph out there of him on his high school tennis team, as if that's a warning sign or something. That's irrelevant information. We know more about him than we know about our next-door neighbor. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. So... Copycatting does exist, and it's not about the face of the name. It's really about the extent to which we turn someone into a celebrity. That we shouldn't be doing. If nothing else, it adds insult to injury in terms of the victims. Hmm. Okay, so it's less about never naming the attacker and more about not trying to turn them into a Right. The basic facts are fine. But I guess the, this was but, a big... But not the fluff. Right. Okay. Yeah, because obviously, you know, as a journalist, I've, I've certainly have sympathetic views towards the idea of not giving notoriety to these people. Um, I have always been a bit skeptical that the notoriety is what drives someone it's to do this. It's a fringe benefit. Um, I don't think it, it's not the primary reason. Though. Right. But at the same time, I don't. Yeah, I I agree that there's no need to make them uh, famous uh, or make them, you know, some sort of cause celebrity. Like, uh, I mean, this is a bit different. But the Boston bomber, the Rolling Stone cover that they did for him, um, perhaps their intention wasn't to glamorize him, but uh, you know, it right. can be hard to look at it and not see that as the outcome. Yeah. Um, so. I've always tried to avoid using their names as much as possible. Um, maybe it's not possible to completely avoid it at all times. Uh, certainly, if you're reported, you're trying to report on the details of what happened. It's going to be very difficult to never name the perpetrator or any of well, their characteristics. But, so, uh, what's a, so if you shoot four people, you shouldn't have your name in the paper. But if you shoot two, you do. What's the dividing line? Or oh, if you're a serial right. killer, shouldn't name serial killers? Or maybe we just shouldn't make movies about them or documentaries about them. Mm. Or what about people like Whitey Bulger? I mean, we write about criminals. <laughs> I don't see why mm. someone who shoots four people or more should be dealt with differently than other criminals. That, that's right. But so 2020, uh, uh, to go back to your point here on um, – the post 9-11 Baldwin school shootings. 2020 had a uh, obviously very significant lull in uh, mass shootings generally, mass mass killings. Um, Presumably that has a lot to do with the coronavirus. Uh, But interestingly, with your point, perhaps it's not just the lockdowns or the the lack of uh, large gatherings that led to it, but perhaps also the fact that Everyone was talking about something else, which was the growth. Also, for people, it was that... less. People are less apt to think that they're the only ones suffering in this life, in this country, because so many people were suffering in 2020. So, we, yeah, we only had three public mass shootings in 2020. Uh, two of them were before the pandemic. Only one during the pandemic. Right. Unfortunately, the numbers have bounced back up this year. 2021. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, people kind of, I guess, took that as a a dark uh, reminder that we're returning to normalcy, I guess. Was, I remember that, obviously, when the first uh, ones happened in Atlanta and, and uh, uh, Colorado, that was sort of a remark that people had, we're, we're getting back to normal American life. Do you think, I guess, uh, going along that line, do you think that mass shootings or mass, you know, mass shootings that lead to mass killings or that are mass killings are just a part of American life. Is it just the way things are going to be? Um, I mean, it's obviously we've talked at length here about the fact that they're not accelerating to the degree that the media has often portrayed, but they are still certainly happening and perhaps increasing to some degree. Um, what is that just part of living in this country? Uh, is there is there some magic silver bullet that will uh, you know stop we this? could virtually eliminate mass shootings in this country, but we won't. In some, for example, Australia did. People often point to us Australia. They had a big mass shooting in 1996. It virtually eliminated uh, private ownership of guns and had a huge gun buyback. And they only had, and they only had one mass shooting since then. It was actually a couple of years ago. Uh, but we're not Australia. We have a Second Amendment, you know, obviously, and, and that's not going to go away. Uh, if we really wanted to eliminate mass shootings, we would round up all the guns, round up all the people who scare us, anyone who writes ugly things on the Internet. But we're not going to do that because we value our personal freedoms. And for, this is unfortunately one of the prices that we pay, pay for it. So, Okay. So you do see it as, as sort of a byproduct of living in a, I guess, a freer society where people have the right to own guns and speak and do bad things. Uh, their minds, because that's another thing that they restrict in, in European countries with fewer mass shootings. They restrict free speech as well, and you can be arrested for uh, saying yeah. mean things. But there are, there are other factors. Um, we, we have seen in this country so, an eclipse of community, and that's not going to change. You go back in the you know several decades – if you were lost your job, your next door neighbor would be over with a casserole, anything I can do. But now you don't even know your next door neighbor. They don't even know what you do. And if you're out of work, they don't know that either. We, so the, unfortunately, when people are suffering, they oftentimes don't have others around them to help them get through the hard times. That's not – unfortunately, that's not changing. Uh, you know, one of the factors you find in almost every mass shooting is someone who – um, doesn't have a strong support system. They don't have others around them to help them get through the hard times. They don't have other people to help them put perspective. So when they feel like, oh, they're, they're getting the raw end of the stick and only them, there's no one around to say, hey, wait a minute, let's think about this logically. You're not the only one who got laid off. So that's not changing, unfortunately. We have, we, we have this society has changed. We become a lot more mobile, a lot less interconnected, and uh, we don't have a lot of affinity and connection with our neighbors. Right. Um, but to your point, we haven't seen a massive increase in, in these sorts of incidents. Um, so it's sort of, I guess it's just kind of hard to look at um, the last several decades and we have these incidents persisting but not necessarily growing uh, where uh, while we've had a myriad of other variables change at the same time and they don't necessarily seem to be making things better or perhaps worse by a large degree uh, you know we've obviously sold a lot more guns over the last 30 years than when uh, murder gun murder was at its peak in the 90s um, we've we've seen all sorts of changes like the ones you you've mentioned here um, but, but the, it almost seems like a, from what, from what you've said, like a, just a fact of life in America that we're going to have to deal with these things, which is a very depressing, uh, notion, I, I suppose. I mean, it's good news that they're not increasing in the way that the media has portrayed it, but it's obviously bad news that perhaps there isn't a well, way to get to we've zero. We only have one year with the zero. Realistic. Uh, I mean, you go back to the 70s and 80s, we tended to have like one or two a year. Now we have hmm. six to ten a year. So it has increased, but so has the population has increased. 
So I don't want to say there's been no increase over the long term. Over the long term, yes. Uh, but over mm-hmm. the past 15 years, not so much. Uh, there's not an epidemic. Okay. That, the important thing is that okay. not, so there is a we difference. often hear there's an epidemic. It's not an epidemic. There's an epidemic of fear, but not mm-hmm. an epidemic of, of shootings, of mass shootings. All right. So there has been a difference going back yes. further, but uh, just not as much in recent uh, recent years and certainly not in the way that's been portrayed in media. And so maybe there are factors like the ones you discussed that that are, uh, you know, the sort of disconnect. The bowling alone, I guess, was the famous uh, uh, sociology paper on that. But but um, yeah, it's certainly there perhaps are factors that are more societal than individual um, that are may, perhaps not something you can legislate uh, a fix to, but um, that that require more of a uh, communal effort uh, outside of government, perhaps to to return to the days before mass shootings. Were well, we don't have a very good support common. system, um, a safety net in our country. Yeah, that would help. Yeah, that would help. And that's other countries area. are do a okay. lot better job than than we do in terms of helping people who are struggling. I see. So that that's perhaps another factor that people need to look at. Although, I guess it's not necessarily that someone is mentally ill and struggling. It's just that perhaps right. they're going through a period of depression, something like that. That's less of a severe right. uh, mental illness and more of a just something that they need helps uh, working. And what's interesting is, is that this idea of in the wake of a mass shootings, you hear we need to improve mental health care in this country. And we do. But the reason to do it is not a mass shooting. The reason to do it are the millions of Americans who could benefit. I wish we'd talk about improving mm. the mental health system on a day when we haven't had a mass shooting the day before. It's an important thing that we should be doing, but not for this reason. And the same thing I, I feel about guns. I mean, you and I may not may differ, but you know, one thing about mass shootings is they, they do get a lot of attention uh, and, and, and they spark debate about, about gun control. But the ironic thing is that the kind of mm-hmm. gun crime that's least impacted by Gun control are are the mass killings because these individuals are very determined. They don't pick up a gun on a whim. They're very determined. They plan their crime for weeks, months, and they find a way to get the weapon that they need. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something about guns in this country. I do believe we should do it. And the reason we should do it are the 32 people on average who are killed every day in America – in a homicide, gun homicide. That's the reason. That's right. the reason we didn't do it. Yeah, no. The, it's interesting to see how our politics are driven, or our gun politics are yes. driven almost entirely by mass shootings when they make up a very small percentage of the actual uh, gun crime in the United States uh, and are really a wholly different sort of policy right. problem to tackle. Than if you want to try. Now, I remember when we had shooting. debates in the past uh, few just... years, or de- debates in the presidential campaign, and the topic of guns comes up. They start talking about mass shootings. That's less than one percent mm-hmm. of the victims of homicide die in these mass killings. Less than one percent. We have we have big issues when it comes comes to crime and gun crime in particular. Absolutely, this is. This is perhaps the, the most visible kind of gun crime, but it's also the least common. Well, uh, I really appreciate you being on. I don't want to take up uh, too much uh, of your time. Can I, I ask one schedule. more thing? What, okay. uh, you know, I, I don't, yes, I don't want to be misunderstood by when I say this is not an epidemic. You know, uh, about a year and a half mm-hmm. ago, I did a, another podcast reason.com and talked about the fact that there's no evidence that there's an epidemic and that was tweeted out by the host and uh, got retweeted quite a bit including uh, including uh, uh, the president of the United States at that time uh, mm. that, who then concluded that there's not an issue because I said it's not an epi- epidemic we don't have to do anything about it well the fact that it's not an epidemic doesn't mean it's not a problem. 
it is a problem. Lots of people die. Right. It's scary. We should be doing something about it. But let's also try to stay calm and think about uh, policy changes in a rational way. Right. That's the key here is, is looking at the actual data instead of going off of emotion, I guess, would be the the, the sort of conclusion that, that you perhaps want people to draw from this, right? Um, so tell me, uh, for our listeners, where can they find more of your writing? Uh, and what if they want to look deeper into this subject, well, my what's the best way to website do it? jamesallenfox.com, J-A-M-E-S-A-L-A-N-F-O-X.com. I'm a columnist for USA Today. All my columns are available there well as the other columns I've done for other papers. Uh, done several books on this topic. The most recent is called Extreme Killing. Uh, so there's a bunch of stuff that I've done. And uh, again, I've, I've been studying this topic for 40 years. Uh, and hopefully that long-term experience uh, helps me with some perspective on what's going on. Well, that's why I brought you on to the podcast, because I think you do have some really good perspective on this and and really bring in a, a much more uh, informed opinion on the topic uh, than a lot of other people who, who discuss this. So that's, that's why I wanted to have you on. I think you're very uh, knowledgeable. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of that knowledge with, with me and, and the listeners. Uh, and hopefully we could have you on again in the future as well uh, to talk about more subjects. So. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. All right. Well, I think that was actually really fascinating, maybe a little bit depressing, uh, some of it that we can't perhaps instantly solve all the issues that we discussed. But uh, I think there was a lot of insight there from somebody who's studied this topic for decades now and, and really knows what he's talking about and can back a lot of it up with data which is important. That's, that's the kind of person, you know, that I want to have on the show for sure. Um, speaking of which, if you have suggestions for who else you would like to hear from on, on this podcast, make sure you leave a comment over at the reload.com or, or email me, uh, reply to the members email. If you're a member, um, and I'll try my best to get on who you guys want to hear from. So, uh, that's it for this week. I think, uh, it was a really good show. I think we've got a lot of good stuff. We've got that great piece over at the reload about the ghost gunners down in Florida uh, and their time together. It's called uh, Halloween in June, right? The ghost guns happen in June. Get it? It's very clever. I'm very clever. Anyway, I <laughs> will talk to you guys again real soon on the next episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones, but none of them were ever.